nervous about interviewing Anthony? I am too. I'm very scared. Are I you? Mean, yeah, I'm sorry. I made a very serious drink today because I'm a little nervous. Did you? What'd you make? Need some liquid courage. I, I made my own Manhattan because Chris is busy. Holy cow, I was going to make a Manhattan too. Hello. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Hi. Great to see you both. Hey, Cheers. Great to see you too. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're oh, very welcome. Oh, oh. Do you, have a, you have a pour like mine. Oh, wait. We can't. There, there we go. <laughs> oh, that looks delicious. What it's is very that? good. It's mm. a gin martini. Mm. Cheers. Ooh. With gin mare. Oh, that's good. I, I uh, you. know that you love art. I do. That's so beautiful. This is, um, we call this painting, Do These Spots Make Me Look Fat? <laughs> <laughs> it's really gorgeous. Uh, thank you. Duncan bought that for me. It's really lovely. Canadian artist or? Yes, uh, from the old town that we lived in before in Oakville. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. A local painter, lady, really, really great. So I've studied your other shows, so I, I know about quick fire. I'm very <laughs> proud of my swear words, so don't miss that out. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that makes me so happy. So, yeah. People um, might not know, because we have people that aren't in the opera business. Yeah, sure. We want to tell them that you are the, I want to make sure I get this right, because you have not one, not two, but three titles, which That's is right. impressive. I'm the general director, president, and CEO of Lyric Opera of Chicago. Thank you. The world I, won't, I, won't come to an end in if you put in the the. But, uh, that, thank you. No, I, and I have in my past. Uh, yes, this is, this is the end of what would have been my ninth season. Wow. And you are the fourth person that has been I'm the fourth general director. General director, but before this, you were at Houston Opera and the general director of Houston Grand Opera from from 2006 to 2011, and general director of Welsh National Opera from 1994 to 2005. So I moved from Cardiff in the UK to Houston, Texas. Wow. So let's go way back. Yeah. I read that you saw your very first opera at four years old. It's, it's true. Um, I was born in London. I grew up in London. And my parents were never that passionate about opera, but they were very enthusiastic about giving me every possible experience as I was growing up. And so they took me, when I was very young, to a performance of Hansel and Gretel by Humperdinck, at the old Sadler's Wells Theatre in North London. Oh, cool. And I honestly don't remember that much about it. I do remember that they would not buy me a third banana ice cream in the intermission. So that has now become my definition of a, of a deprived child, of course. <laughs> um, but what's weird is that Hansel and Gretel is still one of my absolute favorite operas. I, I adore it. Whether that has anything to do with it having been my first exposure to the art form or not, I, I don't know. And then fast forward about 10 years, and my, one of my parents took me to Covent Garden. My father spent most of his um, uh, career in the UK. My parents were Hungarian. And they came to the UK uh, as refugees. My father got out of Hungary in 1939 and um, spent the war in Scotland. 
okay. um, and eventually immediately after the war moved down south to initially Bristol and then to London. My mother had the m much more classic Central European Jewish experience. She was born in Dürr, um, the second city in Hungary, an industrial city halfway between Vienna and Budapest. Mm -hmm. And she was moved into the ghetto um, after the Nazis invaded. She was deported to Auschwitz. Uh, she was taken on the March of Death as the Nazis were evacuating the extermination camp, um, moving the inmates back into Germany. She was liberated by the American army um, in a town called Minden near Hanover in Germany, and then eventually got to Britain in the late 40s. Um, and she moved to London as a refugee. Um, she got a job as a teacher. She was a qualified modern language teacher. And she and my father met in the 50s and married in 53, and I came along in 1957. So I, I was a kind of miracle baby given my mother's experience. My, my parents were older. My mother was 45 when I was born and my father was 46 when I was born. And so the last thing I think um, either of them expected was um, a son. And I arrived and of course you could imagine the extent to which I had a extraordinarily privileged, wonderful, spoiled childhood. <laughs> so fast forward to my early teens and my father was working for a, a big mining company called RTZ in London, Rio Tinto. Mm -hmm. And um, he was in a middle management position and the board of RTZ had a um, regular pair of tickets to Covent Garden, really great seats in the orchestra stalls. And um, my parents were the sort of people who rather than find a babysitter for me, and the two of them went off to the opera. Um, one of them took me and the other stayed home. So <laughs> in my very, very, very early teens, I saw Tito Gobbio Scarpia. Um, I, I saw Fontaine and Ureyev dancing Romeo and Juliet. Um, and the bug kind of bit. And it was really in 1972 that I took myself to the opera house on a regular basis, to theater, to ballet, um, to concerts, but mainly to opera. And opera became my obsession, my addiction from my very early teens. And uh, it's terminal, I'm afraid. I'm <laughs> terminally addicted to, to opera. Thank God, thank God. <laughs> How did that translate into where you are now? Because you were a lawyer, yes? You went to university for that? Yeah, but if you'd asked me when I was 14 what I wanted to do when I grew up, honestly, my answer would have been I want to run an opera company. And I know that sounds hokey and, and kind of weird, but honestly, that is what I would have said. Um, the family home was in Wimbledon in the suburb of Southwest London. And so I, I was a fairly solitary child. I went by myself mainly to theatre and opera and concerts. And so I was on the tube on the underground um, between Wimbledon and Covent Garden. And so I had about an hour, an hour and a quarter there and back. And this tells you how strange a child I was. I spent my time dreaming up opera seasons. I dreamt about seasons of repertoire, casting, that sort of thing. So yes, Kerry, I did study law at, at university. Um, I chose King's College London. King's College is part of the University of London mm -hmm. and it's in the Strand and I chose it specifically because it was 
five minutes walk in one direction from the Royal Opera House Covent Garden and six or seven minutes walk in the other direction from the National Theatre. Yeah. And I have to say, I spent more of my time studying law in those two institutions than I did um, in the law library. Okay. And then when I graduated, uh, which was in 1978, can you imagine how long ago it is? I thought, well, I've got this far, I may as well study um, to be a barrister. So I took my bar finals okay. um, in 1979. I'm a member of Gray's Inn. I'm a qualified barrister. Um, I, I then did my apprenticeship as a barrister, which is called pupillage, mm -hmm. and I did uh, what's called marshalling, that's being a kind of assistant to a high court judge on circuit, and I was getting on fine, and I was enjoying myself, um, but I was surrounded by people who had a huge focused sense of vocation for the law, and my sense of vocation was for the arts in general, and opera in particular. And I felt that I did not want to get stuck at that age. I was only about 22 when I qualified as a barrister. I didn't want to get stuck in a rut that didn't feel like my rut when I thought that I knew what my rut was. And so I went to my prospective head of chambers who was offering me a place in chambers, which was quite a big deal and said, would you let me take three or four months off because I would like to spend um, some time seeing if I can get a job in the arts. And so my first job in the arts was as assistant to the theatre director at Sadler's Wells Theatre, the old Sadler's Wells, which was exactly where I saw my first opera. Cool. Um, cool. It, it, it was kind of amazing. Yeah. 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 Being a general director, general manager, of CEO of an opera house, I would think that legal background helps considerably. I'm grateful, grateful for it every single day. Not, not because I have um, a working knowledge of the law, I'm, I'm way, way, way decades out of date, but because it trains you how to think, how to analyze, how to grasp both sides of an argument. Um, when, when you're training as, a, as an attorney, as a barrister, you, you, you learn how to analyze a particular issue from opposite sides. And, and so much of what my job involves is making value judgments, mm -hmm. combination of subjective judgments, artistic, um, objective judgments, business judgments. I, I mean, the wonderful thing about my job is that it truly is the buck stopping job. I'm, I'm responsible for, for lyric, um, artistically, financially, and administratively. Having said that, it's the absolute opposite of a one man band, as you both know. Yeah. Um, it's a large organization with some amazingly talented people. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I, I can't blame anyone but myself, either in the direction of the staff or in the direction of the board. Um, ultimately, I have the butt-stopping job. And on a good day, that's a dream. Mm -hmm. And you don't need me to finish that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the biggest challenges for you? Being I think I think the, the biggest challenge constantly is is juggling art and money. Um, I, I'm in this job because of my passion for opera. Uh, I, I have a, if you like, a missionary zeal. I want to persuade as many people as possible to share my passion for opera as an art form, to try and derive the sort of transformational 
experience that I've had through the art form throughout my life. Um, at the end of the day, though, um, I'm also responsible for a business, and a business has to work from a, a financial point of view, an administrative point of view, as well as from an artistic point of view. And it's a constant um, challenge of juggling a range of sometimes conflicting pressures. Yeah. Um, and you, you always have to try and achieve the right balance, which doesn't mean compromising all the time, but it does mean compromising some of the time. Uh, and that's a fascinating process for me. And I must say the whole process of repertoire planning and um, formulating artistic programs that are deliverable from a budgetary point of view is, is one of my favorite um, uh, aspects of my job. How has that all changed for you with all of the sudden everything stopped and financially, I mean, I can't even imagine the windfall of what's happened. So, and also deciding how, if you were going to pay contracts or things like that, how that would even work so that the company could still stay alive in the future. The, the last eight weeks have been unprecedented in my experience, I think in all our lifetimes. Yeah. The world, the word unique is an overused word but actually in this case I think we are in a unique situation that has no precedent. Mm -hmm. um, Friday March 13th is a day that I will never forget because on that day I asked the whole ring company to gather on stage because we were um, at an advanced stage of rehearsal for our new production of Wagner's Ring and um, if there are any people watching who don't know the, the, the operatic repertoire, uh, doing a new production of The Ring is the largest scale undertaking any opera company can That's contemplate. Amazing. And it was a stage full of people, um, cast members, members of the orchestra, members of the chorus, stage crew, production team, various backstage departments, dressers, um, wardrobe staff, etc. And I, I said, there is no easy way to say this, but we've reached the point now at which we have no option but to cancel the ring and cancel it with immediate effect. And it was heartbreaking and emotional. There were lots of tears, yeah. um, but everybody at that point, and it was the day after um, the governor of Illinois and the mayor of Chicago um, made uh, an announcement that didn't make it impossible for us to continue, but clearly communicated um, a message that we would have been irresponsible to ignore. So I don't think it surprised anybody, but the reality of it was really heartbreaking. Um, and and to your question, Carrie, I, I mean, we, we had worked out that the direct worst case scenario of losing the ring and losing our musical 42nd Street and all other activities that season, right. the direct worst case financial loss would be $27.5 million. So losing the ring is, is a kind of perfect storm, particularly as we'd already spent most of the money on it. We were already two thirds, if not three quarters of the way through rehearsal. Yeah. 
And so we then had to focus on dealing with the fallout from that cancellation. And immediately I went from the stage to one of our rehearsal rooms and I asked um, the uh, committees of our various um, union colleagues um, to meet with me. And I said, well, we're really in an existential crisis and we have to work together to find a way through this crisis. Um, and I said, well, what I think we need to achieve is to find the right balance between protecting our institution and protecting our individuals, always bearing in mind that if we fail to protect our institution, we're also failing our individuals. Right. And I must say that the process, and it was intensive discussions over the um, subsequent four or five days, was really collaborative. And I'm very, very grateful for that collaboration. And I do feel that the agreements we reached at the end of it were equitable. They mm -hmm. weren't ideal, but ultimately what we needed to do was find a way of improving that worst case scenario. So now we're looking at um, a potential loss uh, on the year of roughly $13.5 million. And the ways in which we were able to bring the worst case scenario down um, included the discussions that I was just talking about, collaborating with our union colleagues, okay. um, included some very painful administrative staff cuts, salary reductions, furloughs, Right. reductions in working hours but it also included what we have called the heroes fund um, my development colleagues and i um, contacted all our production sponsors of the ring and of 42nd street and asked them to allow us to retain their sponsorship even though the productions um, were not taking place and without exception they agreed and that formed the starting point of the Heroes Fund, about a million dollars was generated through ticket holders donating to the company the value of their tickets. But $13.5 million of loss is still a devastating sum of money. And, and of course, that brings us to question marks about the future. Um, and What about the CARES Act? What about the PPE Act? What? Well, we initially hoped that um, the CARES Act's Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, which has been very valuable to many performing arts organizations, would benefit us. Right. Sadly, it has not. We are ineligible because our employee count is too high. And we spent days working with our legal counsel to try and find a way through what was a impossibly complex, ever-changing set of rules and guidelines because PPP was introduced very quickly mm -hmm. and inevitably it, it was confusing. Yes. But after four or five days of analysis, we just decided that it was impossible and we are ineligible, along with only five other performing arts companies in the US. So alongside Lyric, the only other opera company ineligible for PPP is the Metropolitan Opera. The only three orchestras ineligible for PPP is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony, and the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And the only ballet company ineligible for PPP is New York City Ballet. 
So all the other companies who you would regard as direct peer companies to the ones I've listed, like the Philadelphia Orchestra, New York Philharmonic, um, San Francisco Opera, San Francisco Symphony, are all eligible for PPP. And PPP generates sizable sums of money. Right. So the six of us, I have to say, are significantly disadvantaged by our ineligibility. And I gathered together my, my counterparts from the other five companies, and we have actually only a couple of days ago um, sent a, a joint letter to lawmakers all over the country, drawing attention to what I think was an unintentional yes. exception. I, I don't think anyone sat down and said these six companies should not get PPP support. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens and we'll see if in okay. some of the future relief initiatives, um, we are able to get some sort of financial assistance. Sure. No, one common factor among the ineligible companies is that we all own or control our buildings. San Francisco Opera does not right. own or control the War Memorial Opera House and that means that its employee count is lower than lyrics. I see. Okay. So it was the ring production, going back just a little bit, I would like to know this and I'm sure the audience would too. Is that your, wholly your production? Was it a co-production? No, it's an entirely um, original lyric, brand new production. Um, it's been in the plans for 10 years. I, during the interview process that I had for this job, I had a number of meetings with Sir Andrew Davis, our music director, and I remember very clearly at that very first meeting, we both said, wouldn't it be fantastic to have a new production of The, Link, the Ring for Lyric? And, and it's been intensive activity over the last six years because we did Rheingold, Valkyra and Siegfried um, last year, the year before and the year before that. And at the point of cancellation, we were on stage rehearsing the new Götterdämmerung and studio rehearsals for the revivals of the other three operas had already started. Did so yeah, it's, it, it was as bad as it could have been. Did you just have to leave? Did you have to shut the doors and, and was it immediate? Was it? It was immediate, Sandra, yes. We, we realized that it would be in breach of the spirit of the governor's and the mayor's guidelines for us to continue rehearsing. Apart from anything else, it was inhumane to continue rehearsing if we didn't yeah. believe that there was going to be the performances that we'd scheduled. So we, we literally left the Opera House and, and, and the, the Lyric team has been working remotely ever since. So this is now week nine of um, the whole Lyric team working remotely. And I have to say from a an operational point of view, it went extraordinarily smoothly. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of good communication that can take place virtually. Sure. Is, are learning that, you know, I think a lot of companies are going to see a lot more remote working. But at the same time, it, it is surreal. I mean, it is bizarre. We, we, we all do what we do because of our love of, of interacting with people. Mm. There, there is no more collaborative process than producing opera. And, and so for us not to have been in the same space as one another for more than two months is, is very bizarre. It's, and it's and needs and 
sip of this gin martini. Oh, I think so. Oh, oh my God. No, but that's why, I mean, I've, honestly, it's why Sandra and I, we talk a lot anyway over our eight, nine year friendship. Um, but I needed it. I needed to reach out to, to people in our business because we're constantly talking and around each other all the time. And I just needed that connection. So this insanity of whatever this is, Screaming Divas, is how that started. Yeah. Um, for numerous reasons, but that was one of them. And it's great that you have started it because I think having this dialogue, having this, these conversations about subjects that are of such deep importance to all of us, and at the same time, finding a way of not losing our senses of humor, yes. which is so important at this time. And for artists, right? Can I ask one question though, yeah. just for a little funny, funny? Because I think the production that is still on the set now is the one with the horses, yes? Where some of the girls got to ride on them? Well, we should well, talk about this, yeah. Yeah, what, what, what's extraordinary, I, I'm, I'm working from home. Um, my husband, Colin, and I are sticking with the rules of, of the stay-at-home order very um, uh, carefully. Uh, so I've not set foot in the opera house um, for the last... Um, eight or nine weeks, except on two occasions, um, because we do have people going into the Opera House, adhering to social distancing, wearing masks and everything um, for essential work. And there was one Sunday and I needed to pick up some papers from my office. And I went in through the stage door, which is what we're all instructed to do, because that's the part of the building under our control, and wandered across the stage. And the stage was exactly as we left it on March 13th. And under working light, these huge scenery elements from all four ring operas were in place. And you know as well as I do that an empty opera house has a magical energy to it. In this case, quite a somber energy, but nonetheless magical. And I thought these images have to be captured. So a few days later, um, we asked um, Todd Rosenberg, who's a wonderful photographer based here in Chicago, who works a lot with us and with Chicago Symphony Orchestra, um, to come into the Opera House and to spend an afternoon photographing the empty room. And again, I want to emphasize, we adhered to rules of social distancing, but we spent three or four hours together wandering around the house. And I think Kerry, um, we can actually play a slideshow of some of Todd's wonderful photos. Yeah, we'd love to. Right. So th these are the photos that Todd Rosenberg took when we were wandering around the Opera House um, entirely alone and maintaining social distancing um, for a whole afternoon. This is the grand foyer of our magnificent 1929 um, Opera House. Wow. Wow. And here is the auditorium, exactly as it was on March 13th at the point that we canceled the ring. Oh. The set that you see is act two of, of Valkyra, and that was the act that was about to be rehearsed. Wow. Yeah. And this is just a view from the auditorium out onto the street. Um, it's an extraordinary series of light perspectives. Yes, it is. It's gorgeous. And there's the production desk. The production desk exactly as it was left and ready for the rehearsal to start. The score yeah. there for Valkyra. And the it's schedule. still there. Oh my it's God. Still there. It's still exactly in, in place. Unbelievable. It's as if it was frozen in time. And there's yeah. the pit. 
and you'll see the working lights all all working lights we didn't touch anything we um we didn't change any lighting we didn't move a thing <gasps> and then we go onto the stage and we explore the the set a little bit and then we go further onto the stage and just just shots of yeah theater ready to swing into action wow look at that so this is a brand new no one has seen this production well this is valkyra so this this was already seen in its own run two years ago the the production that nobody has seen is go to demo mm. so there is one of the valkyrie horses um in the wings um part of the aesthetic of this production is that the special effects are all manually achieved so you oh. see both the effect and the means by which the effect is achieved so the singers are riding the horses which are being moved around on these camera dollies wow, wow. that's amazing oh i sat and on that horse <laughs> <laughs> i gave the master class and i sat on that horse up in the and there's the body bag with one of the um heroes of 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 um the battlefield being taken by the valkyrie to wow that's a haunting picture that one is amazing yeah my goodness oh i i there's there's one of the heroes ready I to remember be, this yeah more valkyrie horses wow and there's poor fafner in his <gasps> deflated um mode fafner the dragon oh the dragon um, you see the eyes and the teeth oh yeah on the left hand side the red on the left hand side and and when he makes his appearance in act two of siegfried he's inflated so he's huge and as siegfried um kills the dragon so in front of our eyes he deflates but that's at his most deflated and most forlorn oh my goodness and there's the props table set up for Act three of Valkyra, there's Brunhilde's shield. That is the stage manager's chair, right? Yeah. yeah. And those red cylinders are, are light boxes that the actors in Valkyra use to create the magic fire. It's oh, all part cool. of this, this specific oh, production. Wow. And who is this production by? It's directed by Sir David Pountney, um, and the costume designer is Marie-Jeanne Lecker. Uh, the original set designer is Johan Engels. Um, who died sadly four years ago. And so Robert Innes Hopkins is the um, realizing set designer um, and Fabrice Kabur is the lighting designer. So there's Brunhilde's horse. She appears for the Todesverkundigung scene on, on that horse. And that was to be Christine Gerke? That was Christine Gerke, yes. And the grass patches that we see to the right are part of both Valkyra and Siegfried. Oh. Um, Siegmund and Sieglinde end up rolling around on them at the end of Act One. And um, Brunhilde and Siegfried roll around them at the end of Act Three of Siegfried. And this, this was never seen. This is the ruined version of the set that is in place. This is the ruined Valhalla um, in Götterdämmerung with a decaying feast laying the table um, as the gods confront their own destruction. Wow. So fascinating. Thank you for sharing these with us. Oh, with pleasure. These they, are... they do, this is the rehearsal room, and these are big props from Rheingold. So these are the giant's hands. Just as I, I, I said, um, the, the effects are all achieved manually and visibly. Okay. So we see actors um, manipulating these hands, and the giant's 
the singers are on the second story of a three-story tower. Wow. Um, wow. On the top of which are the giants' heads. It's one of it's a model of one of these camera dollies with um, I think one of the gods positioned at the top of it. Mm. Rheingold itself um, turned into figures of humans by Alberich and the Nibelungs. Oh. And that's the Rheingold in its raw form that gets piled up to block the image of Freya. And this is all the rehearsal room, again, frozen in time um, in the middle of a Rheingold rehearsal. Uh, and this is backstage. These are the maquettes for the wigs. Oh boy. Those are Valkyra wigs. Oh. Up in the wardrobe on the seventh floor, there's Votan's costumes for Valkyra. Is that Alan? Is that Alan in Alan that Alan, Yes. <laughs> Love Alan. And this is the nursery table for Siegfried. Siegfried is set in an oversized world um, as seen through the eyes of a child. So all the furniture for Act One is giant-sized, including this table. Ooh. And that's the trolley that Alberich pushes around in, in Act Two of Siegfried with the severed arm that was cut off by Wotan um, yeah. and Rheingold. These are the Götterdämmerung costumes for the chorus that have never been seen publicly. So when are you planning on, on rescheduling this? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, we really haven't focused on it yet. As you know, operatic planning cycles are very long. Um, so my hope is that we can do Götterdämmerung, which is the one of the four operas that has never been seen as a standalone run of performances in four or five years time. And then we will absolutely do the ring again. I mean, there's no possibility in my mind that Lyric is one of the great opera companies of the world and The Ring, one of the great masterpieces of the repertoire, will not meet again. Um, yeah. We will meet again. And that's the, the auditorium? That's the auditorium from the highest balcony. Um, looking down, we see the production desk in place and we see the set for Act Two of, of, of Valkyra on the set. How majestic. It's amazing. And how, how sad and yet grand it looks, you know? Yeah. I said to Todd, um, an empty opera house is full of ghosts and all I want is for you to photograph the ghosts. <laughs> I, I think he's done it. I I, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, those are haunting photographs. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I, I don't think we've had a serious conversation yet about gin, have we? And what we're drinking. Well, mm. I have a new one. My husband treated me and this is a new summer solstice, I think it's called, by Hendrix. Ooh, oh, yeah. Is it good? I, I like Hendrix. I haven't tried summer solstice yet. It's, it's sweeter. If, you, if you're okay with sweet, it, it, it's, mm, I don't put tonic in with it. So I just used uh, soda water and, you know, it's refreshing. And you, well, you are? This is Gin Mare, which is a gin that I was introduced to on vacation in Madrid. It's a Spanish gin because I have, I like Hendrix very much. I like the herbal aromas of Hendrix. Mm -hmm. This is lighter. Um, it's, it's kind of rosemary and olive, Ooh. very Mediterranean. And um, I sent an email to Binnie's, which is the local um, spirit shop here in the Midwest, um, saying, do you stock um, gin mare? And amazingly, I got a response saying, no, but we will in four weeks time. So this is now maybe three years ago. So you can buy gin mare in um, Chicago. Yeah. And I like it with two olives and two onions. 
Oh. And so I like my, my zipper glass. I love the glass. <laughs> and what's Kerry drinking? Normally, I, I am a huge gin, gin drinker, but today I felt like this conversation was going to be a little on the serious side, and I just felt like I needed a serious drink, so I made a Manhattan. Good for you. So I have a question for you now. We, we, did, we did a lot of serious stuff. You and Colin have been married for how long? Well, we've been a couple for, it'll be 36 years in July. Okay. We, we've been married for 12, for getting on for 12 years. We got married in Toronto. Being quarantined, I, I know that, that you two, you probably spend more time than the, the average couple together. Being Well, with, with my job, we spend a great deal of time out and about um, meeting people, chatting with people, and it's a wonderful part of, of our lives. But I have to say, we love being together and we love our apartment and we're having a great time. Um, I mean, with all the surreal dimension and the traumatic dimension of, of what's going on and, and how to try and navigate a company like Lyric through some extraordinarily turbulent waters, um, we are enjoying our isolation. Um, we, we don't normally get to spend this amount of time um, just in each other's company. And even after 36 years, we make each other laugh a lot. Good. Well, that, I feel the same way. Carrie feels the same way. Have you learned anything about each other? Because I've learned is that, that having spent more than half our lives together, we have a wonderful shorthand that requires no explanation that would be incomprehensible to everyone else mm -hmm. but that allows us to have a constant mutual understanding and um it's it's a wonderfully rewarding place to be that's are awesome you nervous? are you nervous about getting back into you know the world I'm not, I'm not nervous from a personal point of view. I, I'm nervous about the course of recovery. Um, I, I mean, it seems to me that, that we're currently caught in a vacuum of utter uncertainty. Yes. Um, in, in, we're constantly, and this applies to Colin and me at home, we're constantly saying, well, what's going to happen? What, what, what do we think will happen next? And, and the reality is we have absolutely no idea. And I, I think it's a waste of energy to try and decide whether you want to be pessimistic or optimistic. We simply don't know. And uncertainty, I think, is the most undermining um, and most unnerving state to be in. Um, you know, people doing my sort of job, we're, we're programmed to deal with problems. When an issue arises, we know what we would normally do to analyze a situation and to try and form a judgment as to the best way forward. We don't even have a benchmark to allow ourselves to develop informed instincts, let alone judgments. Mm -hmm. I, I, having said all that, I don't have any doubt that this will be over. I, I don't have any doubt that the time will come when COVID-19 will take its place alongside 
the myriad of other life-threatening diseases that we take for granted as part of the risk of enjoying a full life. Yeah. But, but from where we are at the moment, we don't know when the recovery will begin. Uh, we don't know how long it will take. Um, and we don't know anything about the new normal. I, I'm sure in my mind that the new normal will be profoundly different from the old normal. But I'm equally sure that in that new normal, the role of the arts, the role of opera, will be more important, more indispensable, more relevant than ever. Uh, and what we at Lyric are doing, and, and you know, this is a time of total uncertainty, but it's not a time of inertia. So what we're doing is working on modeling a number of different possible scenarios and without trying to anticipate which of those scenarios is more likely or less likely, we're developing an understanding of what Lyric's role in each of those scenarios might be. Um, and my hope is that when the recovery begins and when the new normal begins to take shape and begins to become clear, um, the work that we have done in our scenario modeling will help us grapple more quickly with the opportunities and challenges of the new normal. Because there's no doubt that, that we at Lyric are absolutely determined that when that new normal arrives, we will be positioned to really rise to those challenges and opportunities and take our place as one of the indispensable um, cultural institutions of our city and of our country. Um, what we have to do is navigate through these unbelievably turbulent waters in order to ensure that we arrive at that new normal, healthy and fit for purpose. That new normal though, with a vaccine or, or is the new normal trying to figure out if there never is a vaccine, how do we still be safe and get back into the theater? It's obviously a great question, Kerry, and it's one of the many questions to which I don't think there is a coherent answer at the moment. For what it's worth, I don't think the new normal will be fully clear until the disease becomes manageable. Through a combination of vaccine treatment, immunity, I, I don't know what, um, but it will take confidence in the medical profession's ability to manage the disease to persuade people to um, regain their desire to gather together in large right. groups um, in an inside space. I, I don't think it will all happen at one go. Uh, and I think the recovery process will be gradual. Um, I think it's unpredictable still. Yes. Um, I mean, for example, a few days ago, um, a paper was published by the National Association of Teachers of Singing, of, of, of NATS, that was very sober to read because it essentially said that rehearsing or performing as a group of singers will not be possible until a vaccine has been proved. Right. So let me ask you, as, as two singers, what will make you feel safe enough to want to rehearse and perform again? They said in this NAS report, for people that don't know this, a minimum of 18 to 24 months they feel it will take 
for us singers to get back into an opera house singing as a group. That said, I think we as opera singers get very up close and personal with, with our colleagues, the, the, the chorus, the, the other leads that we're with, the orchestra, we have uh, make wig and makeup people that are in our face putting makeup on. We have costume people that have to get very close to you. Then you have to think, okay, well, maybe we could do a, a, a performance with the artist without an audience, because then you have to think about all those, the, the 2,000, how many, what is the, the seating at the, the Lyric? Um, 3,500 or so. All those people have to be willing to be very close to each other or social distancing in the theater, but is that financially tangible? And I mean, one question to me, I can't say I need this, this, and this, because one question to me leads to another question. Yeah. There's all kinds of medical information out there. Nobody really has a definitive yet, except for they do know that certain things like singing and coughing and sneezing are a no-no. And um, it, spreads it spreads it further than they originally thought. And especially in an indoor setting, outdoor setting is a different, a different ball wax. I, because I'm also looking at other musical outlets, not just classical singing. And how are they dealing with this? How is the sports community going to deal with this? Because they are not, not going to have a football game or a basketball game. So if they're going to do that, how does that translate into what we do for a living? And how can we make that? That's a very good, very good analogy. Yeah. And there a way to quarantine us for two weeks, put the show up for a week without an audience. It's professionally recorded. I feel like if there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And those of us that are willing to take the risk, I think that's also a possibility too. Because as my husband and I said, we really, and as you said, Anthony, we don't know what the future holds. And what we know that we can't isolate for two years or a year or even six months and what is our new normal going to be and what is our line of comfortability, is that the right word? Comfortability. Um, Carrie's passionate about this. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you could, I could talk to you for an hour, Anthony, about this. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, clearly we, we have to pull information from as many different sources as we can. I, I, the one thing I would say is that we have so much contradictory information and advice swirling around us at the moment. And I, I don't, don't imply that I'm taking anything in that match report, anything less than 100% seriously. But is it the only authoritative view? Or as we move ahead in the next two or three months, are we going to become aware of different opinions, different precedents? Sure. that can inform our judgments. I, I think part of what fuels the really unnerving part of this uncertainty is the fact that we are confronted with so much contradictory information. We have to be receptive to how the new normal will be different from the old normal, but at the same time, I am and believe we should be profoundly optimistic about the importance of culture, the importance of arts, the importance of opera, the importance of singing. I, I don't believe for a moment that we as a species have lost our appetite for social interaction. I, I don't believe for a moment that the time will not come when COVID-19 is manageable. 
Um, I, I think the time will arrive when people will be eager, hungry, passionate uh, about gathering together to experience the transformational power of live music making. We just have to get ourselves to that point. Yes. But I think once people feel safe, then I think that they will come to the theaters and to art in droves, honestly. I mean, we all need that kind of visceral feeling and emotions. I, I believe that. My question is, what do we do to, for our own art to stay relevant in the time period between now and then? And what, what way can we get around this so that we can still produce art that's worth watching, but maybe not what we're used to watching until we're able to get to that point, if that made any sense. Yeah, it does, yeah. Kerry, and I think it's a great question. And I think we have to constantly take, take stock of the changing circumstances. Okay. What is possible to do today, and here in Illinois, we have a stay-at-home order in place until the end of May. What is possible to do in a stay-at-home order is different from what is possible once that is eased, once gatherings are permitted, okay. um, I, I think as we move through the summer and into the fall, we have to be imaginative, we have to be radical in inventing ways in which we can create art that people will be hungry to experience. Yes. Tell well, um, people out there know this side of you, the, the business side of you, but yeah. I know having known you for quite a few years now, the, the other side of you. What other things besides opera, and I know you are extremely passionate about opera, but what other things are you passionate, hobbies, things like that, that really interest you? Well, one thing that I have to completely stifle um, at the moment is my passion for going to museums, sightseeing, traveling, um, and much of the summer is normally spent on the road. Um, scouting, um, talent scouting and meeting colleagues and talking about productions is, is something that I usually spend the summer doing extensively because it's the time of year when I can actually travel. And we're awfully lucky working in the opera business because um, major opera tends to take place in extremely beautiful, interesting, historic places. Yeah. Uh, and so um, along with trying to get vacation, um, I also enjoy my time in Salzburg, in Aix-en-Provence, in Bayreuth, in London. None of that's going to happen this year. Um, I love cooking, um, and Conan and I are spending a lot of time planning and preparing meals. He's a very good baker. He's not interested in cooking, and I'm not really that interested in baking. So, you know, we, we have a very happy... Um, harmony of, of our household commitments. I find really funny, we, we're cooking a lot too. We're, we're really not doing takeout or eating out um, yet, but um, I, we started laughing at how many times we're running our dishwasher during the week now. No, aren't we just? <laughs> because we, we tend to fill it up much quicker than we do in, yes. in a normal life. Yes. And, and I, I've actually learned to appreciate the dishwasher because Absolutely. I've always thought it's quicker to just go to the sink and wash up a few dishes. I know. I completely, because it's just the two of us. So it's like you and yeah. I, I agree. But with I don't you. think that anymore. I think the dishwasher is a godsend. No, and I'm like, oh, please, please, God, don't let it break down during this time of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what will we do without the washing machine and the dryer? I mean, that's Ooh. a nightmare. Yeah. No, no. Here's, here's another important domestic. Um, 
activity over, over the last few months. Um, I've had a haircut because I ordered from, um, I think it was Best Buy, mm -hmm. some clippers. Oh. And one morning I let Colin loose on my head with clippers. Whoa. That's good. I don't, well, thank you. I don't know why I would ever want to go to a hairdresser or a barber again. I think, I think he's now found his vocation as, as, um, um, <laughs> as a salon um, manager and, and a master haircutter. And of course, we're completely hooked on the great British baking show. It's now oh, on Netflix. I love that so fantastic. much. So Colin's lemon drizzle cake came out of the oven and we applied exactly the vocabulary that Mary and Paul would have applied in, in judging it. Oh, as we did for the cherry cake and the cherries didn't sink. And then he tried a lemon drizzle and cherry cake. Oh. And then the cherries sank and we still oh. don't know why. And you don't know why. Well, Kerry, did you want to talk about scenario modeling? Because we, did you not want to talk about that? Or? Well, I would love to. I just didn't know, you know, I wasn't sure what you were comfortable in talking about or what you want to put out there. I mean, it's fascinating to me, you know, what the different models could be. Just because, like we talked about before, I'm reading so much about the sports. I'm also reading about, you know, like pop singers like Pink and uh, other mus musical artists and how they're talking about doing live concerts because I live in Nashville. I mean, that's a huge issue here. Of course. So, so I mean, it seems it seems to me that, that, that the most challenging aspect of life at the moment is the vacuum of total uncertainty in which we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually think it's a waste of energy to try and predict the future, even to try and decide whether to be optimistic or pessimistic. On the other hand, I think we have a really important and useful opportunity at the moment during this vacuum of uncertainty to try and model a number of scenarios that hopefully will become useful when the recovery begins to become a little clearer, both in terms of timing, in terms of content, in terms of our beginning to understand how the new normal might feel and look. Okay. Always bearing in mind that I don't think we will fully understand the new normal until the disease has become manageable, because only then will we understand the extent to which people's confidence will return. Right. Um, people's confidence as audience members, people's confidence as performers, um, and that could be some way off. And so in the meantime, what we need to try and um, develop is a plan of action that we can only implement once a little more clarity than we have at the moment um, is achieved. So we're looking at a number of different external scenarios. Mm. So ranging from the old normal will basically return in a year all the way through to the old normal will never return and we're going to have to understand what life is like on a completely different foundation and we're thinking through what would lyrics role be in each of these different external scenarios okay. and, and it is a very fascinating, very challenging process. Mm -hmm. And what we're having to do is imagine that each of these five scenarios is real. Uh, and we are fleshing out 
as much detail as possible about each of the five scenarios in order to try and develop a really detailed understanding of the various roles that an opera company like Lyric um, could, could provide within these scenarios. Sure. Uh, uh, as I've said before, I, I really passionately believe that the arts will be back, that right. live performances will be back, mm -hmm. and will be more important, more indispensable, more critical than ever before. Yes. On, on the other hand, I think we have to be flexible, we have to be open, we have to understand that the circumstances in which we are creating art and interpreting art and performing art may be very different um, in the future. Right. Surely there is a creative opportunity in there somewhere yes. for those who have a really deep understanding of technology mm -hmm. to develop creative artistic um, uh, ideas that can only exist virtually. And that could be very interesting. Yeah, Not I as a replacement for life, no, no, no. but to complement life. Absolutely. No, and I think that's what people want is hope. Hope to know that the art form is going to keep growing and changing with, with, with our lives now and that it will be back. I, I know it will be back, but in what capacity? Sure. No, um, I mean, just being here in Nashville and, and having the connections that I have here in a different side, not classically, but on the other side of it, um, the technology that they have is really quite fascinating and really exciting as far as giving myself an opportunity to transfer that into the classical world. So yeah. I really, I love that. I love the discussions because um, that gets me excited of knowing that in some capacity there is a future for all of us. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. We all need to have a curiosity, an appetite to learn, an appetite to grow, an appetite yeah. to develop in who knows what new directions and that's very exciting it is rapid fire yeah sure. so first one is monet or banksy but well i would say piero della francesca if i'm allowed to oh. i love italian renaissance art if you made me choose between monet and banksy i would choose monet that's interesting okay because from from what i know about you you're you like modern art correct i do but i also like the old masters Oh, fabulous. This is probably a long answer, but are there any pet, the biggest pet peeves uh, that you have when it comes to singers? <laughs> What's a great question. Um, I've been lucky enough to have been invited to sit on a number of, of international singing competition juries um, mm -hmm. over the years, over probably 20 years now. And I must say, I really love doing it because it forces you to distill down to very basic essentials what your assessment is when you're comparing two singers as different from uh, between a light soprano and, and, and a bass. Right. And, and ultimately, I think what I look for in a competition scenario is a singer's ability to communicate emotionally, mm. to reach me. Yeah. Right. And of course, those of us in the business analyze a whole range of component elements, mm -hmm. vocal quality, diction, interpretation, mm -hmm. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But, but ultimately, for me, it has to add up to my being moved to tears. Okay. Uh, and that, I suppose, is what I look for more than anything 
um, when I audition a singer, when I attend a performance that I'm responsible for, or that when I attend a performance purely for my pleasure, which I do as much as I possibly can. Right. Wow. Most amazing person you've ever met. Hmm. Ooh, that's a tough wow, one. Wow, that, that I know. is very interesting. Um, you mean it's not Sandra Robinovsky? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm assuming Sorry. present company accept uh, <laughs> all these questions. Um, one of the people that I was most thrilled not only to meet, but also to spend time with was Joan Sutherland. Um, Joan Sutherland was my first favorite opera singer. Um, when I was very young and uh, we lived in, in suburban London, I used to go to Harrods Sale. Um, oh. In those days it had a great record department and I was an avid record collector. And working through, walking through Harrods record department one day, I, I was stopped in my tracks when I heard this amazing recording of what I now know uh, is Sutherland singing Bel Raggio from Semiravide. Oh, wow. And I was a very shy, very retiring child, and I plucked up courage and went to ask the shop assistant what that was. And I have to say, he was pretty supercilious, but he did tell me. And um, over the years, I had the good fortune of being able to go to many uh, of Sutherland's performances at Covent Garden from the mid-70s to the end of her career. Uh, and then um, for about 11 or 12 years, while I was general director of Welsh National Opera, I was chairman of the jury of the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition. And Joan was a regular member of the jury. So I, I actually got to know her a little bit. I got to sit next to her um, on the jury panel. Joan was on one side, Marilyn Horne was on the yeah. other side. I mean, what 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 is not to revel in when when you're a lifelong passionate opera lover sure. able to interact with these extraordinary legends and yeah. learn from their um observations their reactions overhear their conversations so i i was i was really privileged to have not only met but to have got to know joan sutherland and i, I must say it was a revelation for me wow i bet I'm a huge Marilyn Horn fan, so um, yeah, me I love too. her death. Well, then I'm gonna ask my favorite question. What is oh. your favorite curse word? <laughs> well, um, oh. my, my husband Colin is Scottish and his mum, now sadly um, uh, departed, um, was from the Western Isles, the, the, the Hebrides. Mm -hmm. And she came from a Gaelic speaking family. And she spent a lot of time with us, um, including lots and lots of time in Houston. She'd sadly died before we moved to Chicago. Mm. And she came up with all sorts of Gallic expletives that I've learned over the years and, and use with great pleasure. One is um, the one I, I want to, to pick as my favorite, and that's a word that's almost impossible to pronounce. It's krukiak. It's, you, you have to get the ch after the K and before the K. So it's Kruchiach. Kruchiach. Yeah. Kruchiach. Exactly. Exactly. So check. It's there's that's 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 a lot of that. What is it? No, no idea what it means. I mean it's it's it, I think I think it's not too obscene. I, I know knowing Margaret Collins' mother, I'm not sure she would have 
gone too far, but it's a very useful word to use when you want to exclaim. <laughs> That's great. I'm totally looking that word up. <laughs> yeah, He's just don't ask me how to spell it. What is your favorite word? Curiosity. And your least favorite word? Um, my least favorite word would be um, prejudice. Oh, true. Very good. What turns you on? Um, art. And what turns you off? Someone with a closed mind. Mm. True. Very good one. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Um, Colin singing. Oh, cool. oh really? <laughs> I've never heard that. And, he, used and to be a, he used to be a singer. He gave up a long time ago, but um, around the house, he still sings. Often Gaelic Scottish songs. So. Oh, wow. oh cool. Yeah. Okay. And what sound or noise do you hate? Um, a siren that wakes me up in the night because we live very close to a range of hotels and, and fire stations and uh, we have a that's, lot of sirens. Okay, uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would have been a tour guide. Oh, I love that. Okay. Love of, and what would you not like to do? I would not like to do something that didn't require my brain to be active. Good. And the last one, Carrie? Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, the ring cycle is going to begin in 10 minutes. <laughs> and that is a beautiful way. Uh, that's a fantastic way to end this. Thank you. <laughs> it will happen. You're very it welcome. Will. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Thank you so much for doing this, really. And, and Anything else you want to say to the viewers besides that wonderful ending? Just be optimistic. Be realistic. Be optimistic. Dream about the future. And I have no doubt that the future will be even more exciting than the past. Thank you. That's Thank really you for that. Really. Cool hear that. Yeah. Take care. Thank you both very much. All the best. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. you bye bye. Bye. Ciao. Bye. Did you know two months ago what Zoom was? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know what Zoom was. I had a Zoom mic. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I didn't either. That just went to my phone. I just used it for, you know, work yes. stuff. I didn't. Oh, Carrie, seriously. Why did we ever need Zoom? I mean, we needed like FaceTime so we could talk to each other because we're all over the world. Yeah. But I didn't even. It's even like, and I was like, me, me. But, mm. so, okay, so I have this on my, my iPad. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so we also I, since what? since you are the, the, the technic what? I don't have my glasses here. My name's Gary. I know. I'm I'm like, I can't see you. What wait, what does it <laughs> I always feel like an old lady. I'm like, can you see me? Hello? you? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ah! <laughs> Oh my God, I feel like a two-year-old today. I wondered what that was. <laughs> <laughs>